Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Paul, Matt Miller is going to be really bummed yeah. that he's not here today because <laughs> exactly. I know for a fact that he is a big Call of Duty slash video game fan, and we're going to talk about video games Let's now. Joining us is Adrian Montgomery. He is CEO of Enthusiast Gaming, which is a gaming company that is based in Toronto, Canada. Adrian, it's great to talk to you, and I just want to talk about the video gaming industry broadly because clearly it got a big boost during the pandemic, because let's face it, over the last year, there wasn't much else better to do than sit on your couch and play video games, right? Now that the world is reopening and you can go out to bars, you can travel, are we about to see a, a significant pullback in demand? Uh, the short answer to that question is no. Uh, and the good news for people like me and companies like Enthusiast Gaming is you needn't um, believe me, just ask any parent, ask any parent if their children's love of their smartphone and love of their uh, video games has anything to do with the weather or anything to do with the pandemic. And, and the answer is, is 10 times out of 10, no. This is a visceral connection that young people have with video games. Um, it is their favorite sport. It is their favorite pastime. It is how they connect with their friends. It is how they spend their money. It's how they spend their parents' money. So. Um, yes, we saw a surge during the pandemic, but but that is not going to uh, going to claw backwards. Adrian, give us a sense of kind of the the future as you see it of video games, whether it's you know the, the mobility of it, kind of the platform ag agnostic. Kind of how do you think about that? Well, first of all, the the thing that needs to be understood among people who perhaps didn't grow up with video games is that video me. games is the new <laughs> social network. Uh, yeah, you, you and me both. Video games is the new social network. Young people are staying in touch, making new friends. Uh, I, my CFO, he had two people at his wedding last year he'd only ever met over the Xbox <laughs> console. This is, this is real. This is, this is, and, and try telling him those relationships aren't uh, worthy of a wedding invitation. Um, <laughs> this is how people uh, connect with each other. And so as, you know, three out of four Gen Zers don't watch television. They don't mm -hmm. listen to the radio. They don't read things called newspapers, but they, they watch video games and they congregate in communities to discuss them. And so as we move forward, um, video games will be the nexus for fashion, for music, uh, for pop culture. Um, they're going to be pervasive. For politics, Adrian? Certainly. Um, our company, Enthusiast Gaming, uh, played um, an interesting role with the Biden-Harris campaign in the fall of 2020. Um, they had aggressively targeted the Gen Z vote. Um, alongside them, you had, you know, Congresswoman AOC uh, gaining lots of traction and attention by playing video games with famous gamers. Uh, the Biden campaign took uh, took ads out in Animal Crossing. And yes, 72 hours before the vote, believe it or not, the Biden campaign did a customized map in the game of Fortnite. <laughs> four years ago, if you had extra money to burn four, uh, four days before a, a vote, uh, you'd take out uh, an hour of prime time on NBC. This time they took over a map in Fortnite. And I think that just shows you 
um, where this is going. So, Adrian, I'm looking at a chart of your stock, and again, the symbol for your company, EGLX, is the ticker. Kind of over the trailing 12 months, not much going on until November. Then it goes from you know roughly a dollar up to eight. Did you guys get caught up in that meme trading kind of frenzy? I, I don't think so. Um, certainly, uh, much to our disappointment, we don't seem to have a whole lot of followers yet in those U.S.-based uh, Reddit forums like like the other meme stocks do. I think people, we were telling people for the longest time, uh, we have 300 million monthly visitors to our platform. Um, and I think at some point that started to register and, and people started to understand the power and the rarity of our platform. And then shortly thereafter, Enthusiast Gaming was added to the list of the Comscore 100, which is the list of the 100 largest internet properties in America. And alongside Twitch, which is owned by Amazon, as you know, it's it's the only uh, gaming platform to be on that list. So I think people kind of woke up and said, maybe what these guys are telling us is uh, is the real deal. Hmm. And of course, last week you had that share offering, uh, 8 million shares, uh, priced a little lower than where your stock was trading at the time. Do you plan to continue to, to raise capital or issue shares in that way going forward? Yeah, we see in front of us, we see an incredible opportunity to aggregate uh, and consolidate more and more of these fan communities, these digital fan communities. Um, and, and fan communities in all shapes and sizes are, are going to, in, in our opinion, are going to be more valuable, uh, certainly as, as third-party data becomes harder and harder to access and privacy revolution uh, sweeps the Internet. And so we want to aggregate as many of these fan communities. And, and in, in many ways, we're looked at because we're a gaming company uh, as, as an acquirer of choice. So we want to press that advantage um, and, and continual access to capital from great shareholders uh, helps us do that. Adrian, give us a sense for people who don't know kind of how you guys generate revenue. Is it advertising? Is it events? Is, I know esports is a growing part of the business. Give us a sense of how you guys at your company generate revenue. Sure. Well, again, very difficult. Corporate America, the corporate world is pulling their hair out trying to figure out how to get in front of Gen Zs and how to get Gen Zs to pay attention to them. So when, when you reach 300 million of them, 65 million in the U.S. alone, um, we, we sell a lot of advertising, a lot of digital advertising. Um, and we were encouraged today to read in the journal that that's expected to increase by 25% this year. So, so that's a good sign. But we sell a lot of advertising. Um, and the other thing uh, we're starting to sell more and more and more of is subscriptions and freemium content. Um, we've built a business around avid video gamers, and avid gamers will pay extra uh, for extra content. And so these premium offerings, we've seen our subscribers double uh, year over year, uh, and we're looking at more and more uh, subscription packages to offer uh, content licensing is starting to become a significant growth area for us. It seems every OTT platform in the world wants more and more gaming content. So we're putting our channel, uh, channels on, on Samsung smart TVs. Um, and right. then we're going to migrate to e-commerce and social yep. networking and all those sorts of things. Lots of areas to grow. It's a fast-growing uh, segment of consumer spending for sure. Adrian Montgomery CEO of Enthusiast Gaming. They are the largest gaming media platform uh, in North America. This is Bloomberg. Let's dive into the high-yield market. Ken Monahan, he's co-head of Global High Yield for Amundi. 
They have about $2 trillion in assets under management, so they do a trade or two, I think, every day. Uh, Ken, thanks so much for joining us here. Looking at the high-yield market, it's been a risk-on market for a long time. Is there any juice left there, or am I just clipping coupons on my high-yield piece of paper? You know, Paul, it's a good question. I think the answer is you're right. Is uh, It has been a risk-on market for a, a year plus now. After obviously a big fade in uh, in, in March of last year, um, so we're up quite substantially, and spreads are back to pretty close to tight levels. Um, you know, I think we think they can get a little tighter from here, not dramatically, um, but they can still get a little tighter from where they are. Um, and I think that there's a couple of reasons for that. In particular, if you have to recognize that the marketplace is, even over the last 18 months, has become increasingly double B centric. Uh, a lot of that came from downgrades, but the quality of the markets improved, and that would argue that spreads can be a little tighter. Tighter than 290 basis points for high yield. That That is something right there. But, of course, what has driven spreads in part to be this tight from you know, where they blew out last March was the Fed and the fact that the Fed said, hey, I got your back. We're going to have this corporate credit facility. That's unwinding now. What's the impact of that? You know, I think that the Fed's decision to step into the high-yield market was important at that point in time. It obviously provided a floor not only for high-yield but for other asset classes at the same time. Um, so that was critical at that juncture. But I don't think it's been critical for the last handful of months or even quarters. I think that the economy's momentum on its own is supporting the, the direction of spreads. So, Ken, again, the, the, the Fed has been supporting, you know, providing liquidity for this marketplace, and I guess that's resulted in credit quality. You know, it's been much better than I would have expected, certainly, you know, 15 months into this pandemic. Is it potentially masking, is the Fed support potentially masking credit quality issues that the high yield market's going to have to deal with at some point? You know, I, there's there's, a, there's an odd deal here or there that's coming to marketplace that you kind of raise your eyebrows at. Um, you can see that there's maybe a little bit more coming to market in triple C's, but it's on the margin. It's I would tell you, by and large, most of the credit quality of the things that have been coming to market are pretty reasonable. Now, we could argue about pricing, whether you're getting paid for the risk, but in terms of the credit risk itself, it's not all that it's not uh, it's not all that sour. Um, and the other thing I think you need to look at is. Um, and, and we've had an explosion of issuance this year. We're running at a record pace. And a lot of that relates to refinancing. So companies are making use of the low rates for treasuries and then the low spreads for credit to, to refinance their debt, even refinancing their term loans. Yeah, and just borrow because it's cheap to do so. So why not, right? <laughs> invest in Bitcoin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you were talking about triple C's there and the issuance we've seen, but we've also seen outperformance in that riskiest debt. What do you chalk that up to? Well, I think if you look, it was obviously on its on its rear end last year, and particular in the first quarter, and to a certain extent in the second quarter as well. So I think it's a recovery from that. In addition, I think that there's been a level of uh, of cleansing that's taken place in the triple B space, particularly if you look at energy. Um, so a lot of the more problematic companies in the energy sector um, filed last year, and I think so that cleansing process really allowed spreads to tighten and gave uh, the triple C market the wind at its back. Ken, talk to us about the funds flows into the high yield space. Are investors still keen that they can get some return in high yield or, or is money going perhaps even farther out on the risk spectrum? Well, you know, that's interesting to look at because if you look at the high yield marketplace, you would see that as it relates to mutual funds, which is, let's say, about a quarter of the market, 
high-yield funds, whether you're looking at actively managed ones, which we're focused on, or ETFs, there's been outflows. Uh, not enormous outflows, but there's been outflows pretty much each and every week this year. Um, and uh, it, it amounts to a not, a, a not insignificant amount, but it, it, I would argue if you look, what's happening on the other side is it's clear that there are other buyers in the market. So who's buying? I think that there are crossover investors in particular that are coming in, and that's really been the big support of the market. And I think the reason for that is if you look at where triple Bs are, they're trading at very tight levels. And if you mm-hmm. look at the spread relationship between triple Bs and double Bs in particular, those are much closer to historic averages than they are historic tights. And Ken, I think that that's been very supportive of flows. Ken, we only have about 30 seconds left, but if we get a hawkish surprise from the Fed on Wednesday, what's the read-through to credit? Well, look, let's recognize that you know the, the on the high-yield side, we're talking about bonds with a duration that's half of that of an investment grade. So does it knock um, the investment-grade market on its rear end? Potentially. It has much more negative impact, though, on IG than it does on high yield. So that I think that that's our view as to what – if that, in fact, happens, that's what right. the reaction will be. All right, Ken, thanks. We appreciate you coming on, as always, giving us the latest on the high-yield market. Ken Monahan, co-head of Global High Yield at Amundi U.S. Uh, that's an interesting question because we're going to have – you know, mm-hmm. is the market, do you think, expecting anything like that? Uh, it's not priced for it right yep, now. I'm looking at a 10-year yield at 1.48%. That, to me, looks like it's uh, expecting a dovish. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that would be consistent with what, I guess, the rhetoric we're certainly getting from yep. the Fed uh, historically. Well, during the pandemic, it just seems like we are all buying more online. Amazon boxes, as far as the eye can see, you see the Amazon Prime trucks all over the place. Um, but that raises the issue, not just for Amazon, but for all e-tailing, and that's counterfeit. It's been big in the luxury market. Uh, what's happened here during the pandemic? Rania Sedholm, she is managing partner of Sedholm Law Group. She joins us here. Rania, thanks so much for joining us. Um, talk to us about counterfeit luxury goods. I know it's always been an issue for e-commerce. Kind of where are we today? Uh, first, thank you so much for having me uh, on the show today. Well, the luxury space is quite fascinating when it comes to counterfeiting, particularly on Amazon. And uh, what I find of particular interest is that the counterfeit items on Amazon are sometimes double the MSRP hmm. in the store. So I just think that uh, is very fascinating, and someone should study why individuals are purchasing items for 100% more money on Amazon. Is it just convenience or is it something else? I have no idea. <laughs> well, I, Rania, must admit I am a convenience shopper and I probably get six Amazon packages a week. How would I know if I'm buying something counterfeit? That is a great question. So there are two things that consumers can do. And I do purchase some items on Amazon, but not all items on Amazon. And this is what I do. Whether I want to buy a luxury good or I want to buy a consumer good like Crest toothpaste or whichever toothpaste you like, the first thing I do is determine whether or not those items are actually for sale on the Amazon site um, with the permission of the brand. At the bottom of several um, brand name websites, there's something called Stockists or Find Us, and it'll list it out for you. So, for example, HP, a very well-known brand, 
if you go to the HP website, it does tell you that there are real Amazon products, uh, real products of theirs on Amazon. And that might give you some comfort. And it should. But the biggest problem with buying anything on Amazon is that if it is fulfilled by Amazon, it means that the legitimate product is sitting in a warehouse with fake products, and you don't know which product you're going to get. Even worse, when you see uh, the reviews for the product, it's for the product, not for the product from this particular seller. So hmm. consumers are at a disadvantage. What I customarily tell people is first check the price doesn't make sense uh in comparison to the brand name that you know secondarily you know check the reviews if everyone loves the review and it's thousands of people you're probably buying an authentic product and then third you know ask yourself does it make sense that this product would be on amazon hmm. So, Ronya, when someone finds themselves the victim of uh, counterfeit, what recourse do they have to, say, Amazon? Well, Amazon does have a very uh, generous refund policy, and I think that's what they've been hanging their hat on as that term is used. To them, I think, again, this is just an educated guess, if you can get a <laughs> refund, there really isn't that much of an issue. But the problem is, that some of the items that you're purchasing, not the luxury ones, but the consumer uh, good products, some of them can harm you. And the refund may not be enough, you know, depending on what it is you're suffering from the purchase right. of a counterfeit good. So if just refunding isn't enough, how can Amazon get a better handle on this? What do they need to do? I think it would be uh, very helpful if there was an easy way for consumers to report uh, fake goods or counterfeit goods to Amazon right now, they are listening to the brands, which means you would have to call the brand and you'd have to tell the brand as a consumer, oh, I purchased a fraudulent item from Amazon, and then they need to investigate and then the brand needs to work with Amazon. That uh, takes a lot of effort. It would be great if there was a mechanism for consumers to go directly to Amazon and have their voice heard. That's, you know, the first thing. The second thing would be... Uh, allow us to purchase items that are not just fulfilled by Amazon. So we know if uh, ABC seller is selling this and we've had, you know, good experience with ABC seller, we know we're getting ABC sellers uh, product as opposed to a random product in the warehouse. So Ronnie, just give us a sense of like on the luxury side, I'm, I'm always shocked that people would buy a luxury item, you know, worth thousands or tens of thousands of dollars without actually seeing it. But is this a growing part of e-commerce? I think that it is, and I think what's happening is that some of the luxury brands are so well-known that the consumer likely already saw the product at some point in time, and they remember it, and they're still pining for it, and then there it is on Amazon, and they purchase it. There's no need uh, to, to look any further. Fascinating story. Rania, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate that. This is a I guess a, a big issue, Kayleen, is people spend more and more time online, shopping online, and, you know, online has just grown dramatically over the past 15 months, kind of pulled yep. maybe three years of growth oh, forward yeah. uh, that this can be a bigger issue.
Yeah, now I'm going to go home and check all the products I've ordered on Amazon <laughs> over the last six months or so. Exactly. Rania Sedholm, managing partner for Sedholm Law Group, joining us there, and we appreciate that. Again, uh, we've seen this, you know, the e-commerce traffic just skyrocket in it as everybody, uh, when they were forced to stay at home, buying more and more uh, products, different types of products than perhaps they were comfortable buying in the past, all because of the pandemic, but a big change to retail. We'll have more coming up. This is Bloomberg. When the pandemic hit, one of the areas of the economy that was hit, you know, probably just so hard and so brutally was the real estate market. What we had, obviously, if we can all remember back, people leaving cities looking for the burbs, looking for more room, uh, looking just to get away from the congestion and the, uh, you know, the density of the cities. The question is, how long term uh, is that. Let's check in with Brad Dillman. He's a chief economist for the real estate firm Cortland. Brad, thanks so much for joining us here. Again, here in New York City, we saw it firsthand, people leaving uh, the city for the suburbs. Uh, rents plunged. If you wanted to get an apartment in the city, it was a good time uh, to be a renter. Give us a sense of how you think this market's going to play out uh, as we come out to the other side of this pandemic. Yeah, definitely. And I'm glad to be here. You know, I think we need to first recognize that this is a trend that was occurring prior to the pandemic. The pandemic, of course, accentuated it. It is something that we see across markets. We see a migration from more expensive markets to cheaper metropolitan areas, and then also within these markets from the core out to the geographic periphery. So in many ways, this trend has been underway since 2012. Uh, if you look at pricing, it really is kind of compressing across the spectrum in some ways, and I mean that between markets and also within markets. So when we look ahead, some people would say, hey, you know, maybe this is going to reverse. People are going to come back into the city. The reality is there doesn't seem to be that much supply. The bulk of multifamily supply, as an example, is in the urban core. But if you look at it in terms of units, it's really not enough to really move the needle in an underhoused market. Again, you've got estimates that the U.S. is underbuilt to the tune of about a million housing units or more. Are we going to see that supply and demand gap narrow at any point? I think we will. If we were to, if we look at our gauges of, of cumulative undersupply right now, it does look like we hit peak undersupply a few years ago. And that as we see these excellent prints and things like housing starts, uh, you know, particularly on the single family side, that this country's housing situation will slowly right size from a supply demand perspective. You know, one of the things, Brad, that I, I think I've learned over the last several years and we talked to folks in the, the home business is, Yes, new homes are getting built, but they're not getting built for the entry buyer, the first-time buyer, and that's really where the supply issues are. Is that changing at all, or are builders still going for the, the higher-margin McMansion? Well, builders are always going to switch their strategies you know, based on, on short-term fluctuations, believe it or not. They're actually a little more nimble than one would think. Uh, I think if we're looking at millennials, for example, and just the age that they already are with a vast bulk over 30, um, you know, the buyer, the, the home builders are going to have to to shift their strategy at different times uh, based on where where not only costs are coming in, but also where mortgage rates are going for where and when these millennials are able to buy. So I don't know if I would call make a systematic call on that kind of shift. I do think you look at smaller oscillations uh, that define that kind of uh, uh, strategy on the part of home builders. Yeah, I'm in here guiltily raising my hand as a millennial who is nowhere close to buying my first home. So how, if I'm a builder, how would you play me? Do I need to build for renters? So you do have home builders building for renters. Uh, this was really an opportunity that emerged, call it five, six years ago, but really only got steam in the last oh, two years. 
And uh, I do think there's a strategy there for home builders, but I think what they're going to find is that rather than building single-family detached, they're going to slowly actually migrate more towards a traditional multifamily structure. That's to say something like a townhome-style uh, community where you can fit more housing units onto the same, uh, into the same geographic area of the community. I do think there's a strategy there. I think we're going to see more of it. Uh, at the same time, when you have really low mortgage rates like we do now, we've had very low mortgage rates for the last two years. It's priced off of a 10-year treasury rate that's negative in real terms, there is the occasional opportunity to deliver uh, in scale to first-time home buyers or to just you know, new buyers in general. You know, Brad, here in the, in the New York metro market, the story is Florida, Florida, Florida. It seems like everybody is leaving for Florida. What are some of the other, I guess, hot areas of the country that you're seeing in terms of demand, both for rentals and, and uh, ownership? Yeah, Florida flags well for us um, also. But, you know, an area that's been a little bit overlooked has actually been the Northwest, and not just the Seattle Cascadia, but really the peripheral Northwest, Idaho. Uh, so you've got Spokane, Washington, and eastern Washington. You've got Boise. These are markets that are looking really attractive right now. So I think we're going to see a little bit more focus on that area. I do know that there's some smaller home builders really focusing on places like Coeur d'Alene. Uh, and, of course, these areas are supported by excellent migration out of California. But if we get that migration and more people are going there, how long is the cost of living that makes it so attractive actually going to stay relatively lower? And that's exactly the point. It really is converging very quickly. And if you're a local in those markets, this is in many respects a disaster for you as, as people bring kind of California purchasing power you know, to Boise, Idaho. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit tough, tough if you've been you know, living and working in Boise on a Boise income and saving at, at Boise rates. So we don't know. I think that the, the clearest indication that we do have is just how long it's going to take to right-size the overall supply environment in this country. If we're undersupplied by about a million units, that's my estimate. There's other estimates out there. It's going to take about four or five years to right-size the overall market. And until that happens, you're going to see a continued flight of people to the periphery until such times that things like you know, energy shocks or things like this drive them back into the city when commutes become too arduous. But as we can see right now, commutes really aren't the issue as people can work from home more. And that kind of trend is only going to support a movement to the periphery. All right, Brad, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your perspective on the uh, residential real estate market, renters, buyers, where the growth is. Um, and, you know, interesting to see how this plays out as we come out on the other side of this pandemic. Uh, what will the market look like? And uh, it's going to be interesting to see which markets do well and which lag. Brad Dillman, he's a chief economist for Cortland, uh, giving us an update there. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.